Thank you, Dad. Turn your Bibles to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 15. 1 Chronicles 15. Aren't you thankful for prayer? Amen. Man, when you mention situations like Brother Price and Brother Gary and others that we just had to continually bring up, it seems like a new one every week. Man, I, as a pastor, I, if I didn't have the out <laughs> of speaking to God about these things, I think I'd explode on the inside. I, there's just something relieving to me even listening to somebody like my dad pray Understanding that here's what it does for me. Whenever I, I take these things to God, I just it helps. It reminds me that okay, I did what I can do, and, and I might have to do this again in ten minutes to remind myself that that I can't do anything about it, and, and give me peace again. But man, prayer is just a powerful, ongoing relationship with God that can give you it can give you peace during situations like this that are just outside of your control. Um, man, I, I wish like anything we could do something to fix Brother Price's situation. That is tragic, man. Tragic. And, and it's just begun for him. And so, uh, thankful God knows. Well, I'm going to begin a series tonight. Um, you can see I've, I've titled Prayerful Worship, a study through the Psalms of Asaph. And uh, as, I, as I said, uh, I think uh, Sunday afternoon, I, I really tried to wiggle my way out of a series through the Psalms Again, just, just because, um, not that I don't, I, I love the grind of, of sermon prep, but particularly the Psalms and studying them, it's just been, cha- it's been very, very challenging for me um, in the study. It's been rewarding, but it's been a grind. I wanted to take a break from that. And so I tried to dive into a couple of other uh, angles and avenues and series and studies, but God just kept bringing me back um, to, to these thoughts and, and I couldn't shake it. And so here we are. We're going to dive into these. Um, I believe that the, uh, the Psalms of Asaph go from Psalm 73 to Psalm 83. It actually starts at Psalm 50. We might do that one at the very end. But we're going to start with the one in Psalm 73 next week. But I want to first introduce you uh, to who Asaph is. Maybe all you know is his name and nothing about him beyond that. Of course, when we say the Psalms of David, I didn't really need to give you much of an introduction uh, to David. He's one of the most famous Bible characters in all the Bible. So you kind of had already some credibility built up for who David was, but maybe Asaph, this will help you tonight, kind of a lesson, a little bit of preach in it, um, but really I'm just going to show you who he was as a man, and in short, he was a worshiper, and really he lived a life of worship, and so we're, we're going to center our thoughts kind of on, on that tonight. I'm titling the message, A Life of Worship. I, I, you might know this already, I'm sure you do, but, but humans are, are worshipers by default, Meaning worship is a reflex that we're born with. It's, it's a necessity of our heart. It's really what we're created for. A.W. Tozer, I, I would encourage you, any book written by A.W. Tozer, I'd encourage you to pick that up and read that. He's, he's very, very rich in his writing. He, he puts it this way. Worship is the normal employment of moral beings. It is built into human nature. Now, when I talk about worship, I'm not talking about a moment of worship, like, like a moment at church. Those are great, but I'm I'm talking about beyond that. I'm not talking about a moment in prayer or a moment while listening to a worship song. All of those are great moments, but really what I'm talking about tonight is a life of worship. You know, there's a difference between a moment of worship and a life of worship. John Kitchen, an author, put it this way. Life rightly lived, life fully enjoyed is lived as an unfolding moment by moment expression of worship to God. In other words, a life of worship is not a single moment of worship. It's a moment by moment worship. But, but what does that look like exactly? How, how are we to picture 
our life as worship. Well, that's where this man named Asaph comes in. We're going to study the the lyrics of his worship songs. We're going to kind of listen in on the prayers for the next few weeks of this full-time worshiper of God. His psalms are kind of like prayer songs. They're the prayers of his heart. Is Is these lights flashing? I thought so. Is it about to go out on us? Do I need to preach in the dark? What, what was that missions conference with Tim Raven two or three years ago? I will replay that sucker. We will get our, our flashlights on our phones out and I will preach, baby. I will preach even in the dark. I'm that dedicated to the word. Anyway, the, the prayers of, of his heart put to song. That's what these are. That's why I called the series Worshipful Prayer. And, and there should be a serious aspect of worship. In our prayer life. So, so what does Asaph teach us about a life of worship? Two things. No, number one, Asaph was devoted to a life of worship. Now, when we first meet him here in 1 Chronicles 15, he, he was part of bringing the Ark of the Covenant uh, from Gibeon to Jerusalem. So, so look at 1 Chronicles 15, verse 1 and 2. And David made him houses in the city of David and prepared a place for the Ark of God and pitched for it a tent Then David said, none ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For them hath the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God and to minister unto him forever. Now notice David's instructions in the first part of verse 2. None ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. Now now why was David clear on that in chapter 15? Well, because he wasn't so clear on that in chapter 13. If you know the story, it's because when David tried to transport the ark the first time back to Jerusalem... He transported it by way of a new cart pulled by oxen, not carried by Levites as God clearly instructed in the law. So eventually the oxen stumbled by by going through maybe uh, an unstable place and it caused the ark to start to tilt. And a man by the name of Uzzah instinctively, like you would, reach up to keep the sacred ark from falling to the ground. And when he touched the ark, what happened? He died instantly. Three months later now, in two chapters, David's going to give it another shot, but he's going to do it God's way, which means having the Levites carry the ark. That's a whole nother message for a whole nother time. But this is where Asaph comes in because he was a Levite. Now, who were the Levites? The Levites were were a priestly tribe who were in charge of the tabernacle. They were later uh, in, in, in charge of the care of the temple. In fact, uh, the Levites received no physical inheritance at all. In the promised land, that their inheritance was the privilege of serving the Lord and of helping his people with their expressions of worship. That was their privilege. I want you to turn to, to stay in chapter 15, but go to verse 15. And the children of the Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders with the staves thereon, as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. And David spake to the chief of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be the singers with instruments of music, psalteries and harps and cymbals, sounding by lifting up the voice with joy. So the Levites appointed Haman, the son of Joel, and his brethren, Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and the sons of Merari, their brethren, Ethan, the son of whatever that dude's name is, it starts with a K. So these, these three men were each a descendant of one of the three sons of Levi. So Asaph was by physical descent a Levite, which meant this. His entire life was devoted to worship. The Levitical priests, that's what they did. It's who they were. Now now you might be thinking, well, that's different then. Why give Asaph credit? He had to do it. 
It was his job to worship. It was the family business. But that's precisely the point I want to make. Because worship in our life as Christians today is really about lineage and birthright as well. Not primarily about emotion and sentiment. Follow me. You don't worship because you feel like it. You know why you worship today in 2020? Because you're a child of God. And that's what child, children of God do. Oh, no, Peter alluded to this in, in the New Testament for us New Testament believers. First Peter chapter two, he said, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. Watch this and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. But ye, that's us. We're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. And holy nation, a peculiar people, why? That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now watch here. Asaph was born into a life of worship. You and I, if we're saved, we're reborn into a life of worship. John 3, when we're born again, right? We become priest unto God. Just like Asaph was a Levitical priest. And just like Asaph's lineage dictated that he live a life of worship, our calling today, if we're saved, is no less demanding. So, so whether you feel like privately worshiping God in the morning through prayer and meditating on Scripture, doesn't matter if you feel like it or not. That's what you're supposed to do. If you're a child of God, you're supposed to commune with Him in worship. Whether you come to church and you're in the mood to worship or not, really doesn't matter. Worship's your calling. Whether or not you're worshiping through an honest tithe and a generous offering doesn't matter. Worship through giving is demanded of you because you're a child of God. Whether or not you feel like using your God-given spiritual gift for, for, for the edification of the church through service and ministry really isn't optional because worship through service is demanded of every child of God. Are you with me? Emotion and feeling and sentiment is certainly involved in worship, but it's not primarily based on those things. If, 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 if you did what you felt like in terms of worship, many of you wouldn't have came tonight. It's based primarily on who you are in Christ. You are a high priest to God. You are called to give him worship and praise in everything you do. That's who Asaph was. He was a Levitical priest. His entire life was dedicated to worship. But we also see something else uh, about his, his, his ministry in the temple that, that teaches us something uh, about who he was. And it was this, Asaph demonstrated a life of worship. This is where I, I want to go to work on, on really uh, peeling back the layers of, of what his life of worship teaches us. Uh, turn to 1 Chronicles 16. So one chapter over from where you are. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen there. Verse 37. So he left there before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, Asaph and his brethren. Why? To minister before the ark continually as every day's work required. There are several ways that Asaph demonstrated his worship. I want to go through those. Here's the first. He he demonstrated for us that worship is perpetual. That's what we just read. The ark of the covenant was synonymous with the presence of God. Thus, continual, daily uh, regularly, perpetually, Asaph appeared in the presence of God with praise and with worship. The, the Hebrew word continually means without interruption. In other words, nothing could stop the, the worship of Asaph to the Lord. I, w- I want you to consider for a moment, I found this study kind of interesting on Monday morning, that, that the same use of the word continual in other Old Testament passages um, 
it's very, very interesting as it describes, just like it does here, the perpetual worship of God. You don't have to turn there, but they'll be on the screen. Let's read 1 Chronicles 16, verse 11. It says, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his face. What's that next word? Continually. Psalms 34 and verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Psalm 71 verse 4, but I will hope continually and will yet praise thee more and more. Psalm 72, 15, and he shall live and to him shall be given to the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be made for him continually and daily shall he be praised. Hosea 12 and verse 6, I can't wait to preach through this Old Testament book. Therefore turn thou to thy God, keep mercy and judgment and wait on thy God continually. But that word is not just used in the Old Testament. It's also used in the New Testament. One that that my dad quoted to the church often in Hebrews. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God. What's the next word? That is the fruit of your lips, giving thanks to his name. Continue. Let's, Let's dig into what this means for our worship then. To be perpetual, continual, without interruption. Now listen, we may not have the same uh, temple duties that, that Asaph had in regards to the Ark of the Covenant, but I would contend that we have a better. We are the temple of God. God resides in us. Yet I found that, that even though a moment-by-moment worship would be much easier for us than it was in the Old Testament where you had to go to the temple and you had to physically offer a sacrifice and you had to have the Ark of the Covenant needed to, uh, to, to, for, to feel the presence of God. E- even though we have it much easier than them, our worship still gets interrupted often. It gets interrupted by difficulties in our life. Oftentimes I think that we let the, the trials of life steal our praise. We, we, we're all about worship through singing and through private devotional time and through prayer and through giving and through service when life is at its best. But, but the moment we take a step into a valley, our praise and our worship seems to be muted sometimes. Our praise and our worship is interrupted a lot of times by an offense. We stop coming to corporate worship because we disagree with something or because something made us upset or because somebody we worship with disappointed us or somebody offended us. Uh, Listen, a real worshiper's worship is not contingent upon those he worships with because he doesn't go to church primarily for them. He goes to worship the Lord. Our worship can also be interrupted by hidden sin. We learned that in David's life. He wrote about it in Psalms 51 after he had hidden his sin for well over a year, the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. He said, I had lost the joy of my salvation. Boy, his words, he might have went through the motions, but they were insincere. He might have sang a song, but it had no joy. It had no meaning. And the same is true for us. We might go through the motions. We might come to church. But if we're hiding sin and there's unforsaking and unconfessed sin in our life, man, our worship at best is insincere. It's hypocritical. It's joyless. The the idea of worship uh, being perpetual, I think, has another implication. And it was true in Asa's life. Watch here. His life of worship didn't stop with him. It was perpetuated for generations that came behind him. It was continued throughout his family. When, When you study Asa's lineage, you can fast forward past David's reign And you'll find that Asaph's family continued to uh, be the worship leaders in the temple under Solomon's leadership. 
Study it for yourself. Fast forward years later after the temple had been burnt down and then rebuilt. It was Asaph's family that led worship there. Fast forward even further to when Nehemiah led the rebuilding of Jerusalem. It was Asaph's family that marched the ark back to Jerusalem and led worship there. It's recorded in scripture that Asaph's family was leading in worship for a span of 500 years. Can you fathom that? Asaph lived such a a life so devoted to worship that half a millennium later, his descendants were still worshiping the same God with the same passion and same devotion. Man, that should be one of the main motivations for why we should stay dedicated to a life of perpetual worship because we want our kids to be worshipers. We want our grandkids to be worshipers. If our children and our grandchildren only see a half-hearted approach to worship, casual, uncommitted, uninvolved, don't be surprised when they aren't interested in worship themselves. Absolutely. So Asaph demonstrates for us that worship is perpetual. Then he demonstrates that worship is proclaimed. I love this truth, meaning worship is proclamation to God. Meaning, worship cannot be suppressed. It finds expression. It takes form. And as we view Asaph's life and his his ministry of of worship, it kind of took on three basic forms as as recorded in Chronicles. First, it came out in word. In word. When when you examine Asaph, you don't see at at first that, that he was a writer of songs or a writer of psalms. Instead, at first, in 1 Chronicles 16, verse 7, he was entrusted with the responsibility to lead in worship through the Psalms of David. Look, look what happened in verse 7. Then on that day, David delivered first this psalm to thank the Lord into the hand of Asaph and his brethren. So I don't know what Asaph's responsibility was there, Miss Virginia. Maybe it was Asaph's responsibility to put music to, the, to David's lyrics. Or maybe music was already there, but he had to lead the orchestra. Or maybe he stood up and he just led the the, the entire congregation in David's psalms. He didn't write psalms at first, but over the course of time, he began to write his own compositions. Because you can fast forward, don't go there, be on the screen, 2 Chronicles 29.30. Moreover, Hezekiah the king and the princes commanded the Levites to sing praise unto the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph, the seer. So eventually he became, and and we're going to study them, a writer of these worship songs, these Prayer songs. But it also came out in instrument. Now, now, now if, if, if you're a capital B Baptist, you need to put on your seatbelt real quick. Asaph's chosen instrument was the cymbal. Look at First Chronicles 16, verse 5. Asaph the chief, and next to him all those guys. Go to the end of the verse. But Asaph made a sound with cymbals. What exactly is a cymbal? Well, Psalms 150 doesn't tell us exactly what it was then, but it tells us it was loud. Praise him upon the loud cymbals. Praise him upon the high sounding cymbals. Now, we don't got no cymbals in our worship service. Frankly, I don't intend on having any cymbals in our worship service. You want to know why? Too loud. (laughs) But... But this tells you, this, this just tells you, don't get all up in arms when you hear a loud instrument. It, it's okay. Um, these were loud. I don't know exactly how they played them. I don't want to go there, um, you know, and kind of compare to how people play loud instruments today. Maybe it was nothing 
like what Loud Instruments are today. But the bottom line is don't get caught up in that stuff too much because I, I think God uses multiple types of instruments um, in, in, in worship and, and it's just fine. But he also came out in voice. First uh, Chronicles 15, verse 19 said he was a singer. So the singers Haman, Asaph and Ethan were appointed to sound with cymbals of brass. And so, so here's the point. Asaph expressed his worship most through music. Playing songs, writing songs, singing songs. Now let me say this real quick. I really believe music's a gift from God. A gift from God to the worshiper. The devil has taken music and he's totally created a counterfeit version of it, hasn't he? But music is a gift from God. It's a powerful expression of worship, whether you write it or play it or sing it. And, and frankly, that's why we make such a big deal about music at Fellowship Baptist Church. Children's choirs, adult choirs, special music, rehearsed instrumentation, good sound system, good media, because it is a primary way, a primary way that we're supposed to fulfill our call of worshiping our Lord. But here's my greater point, not so much about music, as it is about our worship being expressed, proclaimed rather than suppressed. Now, now some may express their worship, and everybody should, through music, and, and then we'll express it through giving, and then we'll express it through prayer, and we'll express it through service. But, but the point is that music, or worship rather, is proclaimed. Worship comes out. Are you with me? John Kitchen put it so good. Worship is what is squeezed out when God moves in. That is amazing. When God moves in and rests his weight upon the throne of your heart, the radiance of his presence and the greatness of his person gets squeezed out of our mouths in praises, our minds in thoughts, and our hands in service. That's good stuff, man. I want to dig into that just a little bit. Look on the screen at 2 Chronicles 29, 30. I want to dig into this thought. Moreover, Hezekiah the king and the princes command the Levites to sing praise unto the Lord with the words of David. And watch what they called Asaph. Asaph the seer. What is that? The word itself means to gaze upon something. Now I'm going to develop this, so hang with me. It means to look intently upon something. It's more than just a glance. In Asaph's case, I, I think what's happening is he, he would place his gaze upon God as a seer and he would express that through writing and playing and singing what he beheld while in God's presence. So what we get in Psalm 73 through 83 is an overflow of what Asaph beheld as he gazed upon God in his private worship. Watch, setting the gaze of our hearts upon God has implications for both our individual and corporate worship. I'm talking about worship being expressed, worship coming out, worship that, that, that is, a, is, a, is a demonstration of, of what is already on the inside. Watch, the quality of our church's corporate worship will be directly tied to the quality of our week-long individual worship. Everybody listen, in, in the auditorium and on live stream, you got to catch this. I, I'm honestly almost done with the message. If, if day by day we personally worship the Lord, and gaze upon the Lord, our corporate worship will be fueled by the overflow of those encounters. Corporate worship, then, oh, don't miss this. It's not about getting recharged before taking on a new week. 
No, corporate worship is about unloading this internal burden of praise and worship that has built up throughout the week to the point where we're about to bust. If you come to church on Sunday and the singing starts and the fellowship starts and your service starts and your giving begins and the preaching is going on and you don't feel something on the inside to burst out, there's not been enough gazing on God Monday through Saturday. What happens when we come into God's house and we worship corporately is always an overflow of what has happened before we ever step foot in this place. The failure then to seek the presence of God throughout the week, it'll show up in your corporate worship. A failure to gaze upon God privately will hinder you from appropriately expressing your worship publicly. Get that. Worship is what is squeezed out when God moves in. So if you come to corporate worship and nothing's coming out, then you put nothing in. There's been no gazing. There's been no private worship. There's been no reading of the word and meditating on the word and saturating yourself in the word. There's been no prayer life throughout the week. And so your Sundays now are a time to get you spiritually built up. It's a time to kickstart you into the week. That's not what the Lord's Day is about. No, that's a byproduct of the Lord's Day. But we don't come here to get energized to go out another week. We come to God's, God's house to show Him what He's worth. To express to Him how much He's meant to us the previous week. To say thank you. That's a good point. It's a good point. Let me make one more. He demonstrated that worship is prophetic. Look at 1 Chronicles 25, verse 1. Moreover, David and the captains of the host separated to the service of the sons of Asaph, of Haman, of Jejutham, terrible at those names, who should prophesy, prophesy with harps and psalteries and cymbals. So in this context, prophecy isn't used in the sense of foretelling the future, but as telling or forth-telling truth about God. So that's what worship really is. A lot of times it makes known something about God. It's a declarative act. In worship, we're not just speaking to God. Watch, we're speaking about God. Are you with me? Uh, Paul affirms this, Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and always and watch. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing with grace in your heart to the Lord. So simultaneously, we are singing to God and speaking about God to others. Literally at the same time. And I, I told you this on night of praise. That, that there are sermons being preached before I ever step into the pulpit to preach mine. That, that, that whenever you are singing corporately, you are praying because many of those songs are prayers. But you're also preaching to one another. And I said it's kind of humbling that sometimes the sermons of mine are long forgotten, but the sermons that you sing to one another, you remember. You preach a powerful sermon. You proclaim powerful truth about God as you're singing. So here's what I'm, I'm getting to. You sing to God, but at the same time, you sing for one another. The implication is that your worship at church through singing is not a solo endeavor. I think I've said this and I've meant well. I haven't been completely on when, I, when I've said this, though, that, 
that a lot of times worship leaders will say, just focus on you and God right now. Just you singing to God. And I think that's definitely appropriate in private worship. I think there's an element of that definitely appropriate in corporate worship. But when you come to corporate worship, it's not just about closing your eyes and, and it's just you and God. It's not a solo endeavor. You're playing, you're singing, uh, your voice is giving life to somebody around you. It's preaching a sermon to somebody around you. That, that, that means that your participation then should be energetic. It should be full of your best effort, whether you like to sing or not. I mean, think about it. What, what, is, what, what is communicated about God to those around you if you fold your arms and refuse to sing? Oftentimes when I'm leading worship, I'll look around and there are more than one, there's more than one person that, that, that isn't moving their mouth at all. There are some people that are literally looking around at who's walking in and who's wearing what and who's sitting where. Totally. I mean, their body's here, but their mind and their heart's not here. And if people were to look at them and take their cues about God from their participation in the singing, man, they're getting a bad view of the Savior. Are you with me? When you worship, it's not just about you. There's another implication to this. I'm going to hasten, but if our worship is a proclamation about God to others, we need to worship alongside other people. You with me? Now, I feel terrible preaching this truth to a group of people that are in church at 747 when there's 30, it's 30 degrees outside. Snow's blowing at 28 miles an hour. You don't need this. You know this. Maybe somebody on live stream needs this. I don't know. All I know is I wrote this on Monday morning for I knew it was going to snow. So I'm going to preach it anyway. There's something irreplaceable about corporate worship. Something that cannot be duplicated in front of a TV or a computer or on your phone. Church on the sofa can never take the place of the physical presence and audible sound of other believers joining their voices with yours in song and in prayer. Get this statement. Proximity to others and proclamation of God go hand in hand. Proximity to others and proclamation of God go hand in hand. The internet and other media serve well as conduits of information, but you know where they fail? They fail to establish the vital God-intended connection that is found in corporate worship. We need in-person church. You know that you're here. I'm not sure everybody knows that, though. We need to be reminded. I mean, that verse says it right there, that something we do in corporate worship via singing is for the purpose of admonishing who? One another. So if you're going to accomplish that biblical command, you've got to be with one another. Proximity to others. And proclamation of God go hand in hand. I was talking to one of my good friends in the ministry. His name's David Harris. He ministers at a church in Springfield, Missouri. He was at services, in-person services, a couple of weeks ago. And they have a church that has a lot of elderly folks. And so a lot of folks aren't able to be in church right now. They have one elderly man whose wife just passed away. They were married for a lot of years. 
One of those just awesome relationships. And uh, if I understood David right, just the day after his wife died, even before they had a funeral, the day after his wife died, in the midst of, of all this COVID junk even, there he was at church on the front row. And, and David said, man, I, I just, I was supremely blessed when I looked across and I saw him singing praises to God. And David was saying that, that making the point to me that maybe that's one of the strongest arguments for why corporate worship is so essential. Because you remember in Hebrews where, where, where Paul says we shouldn't forsake the assembling of ourselves together and then he tells us why? So that we can provoke one another to love and good works. We always say don't forsake the assembly because you need to hear the preaching, but I'm not sure that's entirely what Paul had in mind. I think he had the situation that David experienced in mind. Because you can be provoked to love and good works via a television screen or a computer screen with my preaching, but you can't see that. David said, had he not valued corporate worship, had I not valued corporate worship, I would have never seen that on my sofa. Are you with me? I would have never seen that via live stream. And and, and I can give example after example about why proximity with other people is absolutely valid for certain demonstrations of worship that you need. That's not, listen, that is not said at all tonight to guilt anybody. That's just, it's just right here. It's an implication of a life of worship. We do it together. We do it together and, and and, and, and I, I can't wait. I'm just being honest. I can't wait till it's just, it's normal to come to church again. You know, we just, we just do it together. And I'm, I'm longing for that. I, I still pray regularly for those that can't. And I, I'm so grateful for Eli and others that, that have pursued excellence as much as we can with the equipment we have with live stream. I think it's a great blessing to even those tonight. Brother Mike called Brother Farron and said, hey, man, don't, don't try to drive in. They live out in the country. Don't try to drive in for this. I appreciate Brother Mike's heart in that. That was wise. That was wisdom. And Brother Farron said, man, thank you for that. It was, it's pretty rough. I heard dirt roads and stuff like that. I'm thankful we have live streams so got people like that can see. And Bradley Kalowski and, and the Swansons uh, who've been wrestling with COVID, they, they can watch that. And some of our elderly folks. And man, I'm thankful for that. I just, I just never want us to, I, I want that to just be a supplement. You know what I mean? A supplement. I want it to be a help. And I want it to be an aid. And I want it to be something we can fall back on. But, but man, I, I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that this, together, side by side, this is, what's, this is the main course. The main course. And I'm thankful that our church gets that. And, and by, I really think that, that by and large, our, our church has fallen right in line with that line of thinking. So let's review and be done. Asaph was devoted to a life of worship. It's who he was. It's what he was born into, which means this. If you're saved, by default, you are a worshiper of God. It's who you are. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Based on that truth, do you worship only when you feel like it? Or is it a lifestyle for you? Are you a single moment worshiper whenever you have the spiritual momentum to be so? Or are you a moment by moment worshiper? Let me ask you, has has worship for you been the regular rhythm and default response of your life lately? If somebody followed you around in the morning, at work, through the week, at church, at home, would they call you a worshiper? 
Asaph proved his devotion to worship and how he demonstrated it. His worship was perpetual. Are you a continual worshiper? Or has your worship, if you're honest, been interrupted by a trial? Been muted by a hidden sin? Be distracted by an offense that you can't forgive? Asaph's worship was proclaimed. It was expressed. It was expressed publicly so well because privately he spent time gazing upon the goodness of God. Would you take inventory of your private walk with God tonight? If you find very little satisfaction in your corporate worship, could it be because you're neglecting your private worship? When you come to church, when's the last time that you just felt like you had Monday through Saturday pent up in you and you just needed to sing? You just need to get it out. Asaph's worship was prophetic. I want to remind you to remind yourself that every time you sing a song in church, you're preaching a sermon. And that's a lofty responsibility. Think about it. You on Sunday morning, this coming Sunday morning, you are preaching a sermon. In the, I don't even know what songs we're singing. But, but, but when people glance at you, what message will you be communicating about God by how you worship? That's lofty. That's weighty. We need to be reminded of those things. So, so right here at the beginning of, of this series on worshipful prayer, before we get into Psalm 73 and, and, and so forth, we're going to be looking at things like worship and our perspective and uh, worshipful prayer and lamenting and mourning. And how that even through mourning, that's an expression of, of worship. And, and a bunch of, of other things, patience, submission. That Asaph teaches us through these things, I, I think will be really, really helpful. But, but maybe tonight we just needed to start by, by getting our hearts and minds focused on this idea of not single moments of worship, but moment by moment worship.